This morning, we are privileged to have with us Dr. Tim Sigler, his wife, Bernice. Uh, They're from North Carolina, uh, part of the uh, ministry at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. And uh, we are so pleased to have them here. Of course, they're known to uh, uh, Craig and Juliet Alford, who's a graduate of the seminary where Dr. Sigler teaches. Prior to being at Shepherd's, uh, the Siglers were in Chicago, part of the ministry at the Moody Bible Institute for a bunch of years. And there, having met some of our other folks who are part of the Moody family. But currently, uh, as a, one little blurb says here by Dr. Sigler, provost and dean, chair of the Department of Biblical Archaeology at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. He has traveled extensively, uh, taught, etc. Uh, been a part of uh, archaeological digs, knows a few things about languages, and uh, loves, loves to share what God has placed on his heart. Dr. Tim, I welcome you to come on down. You're all set up, um, so I think you're good to go. You'll want the sermon notes in your bulletin. And it's going to be a good morning. Thanks so much. Outstanding. I'll take Pleasure that. Pleasure to be yep. with you and to share from God's word today. I remember being in a church in the Chicagoland area and at Sunset Bible Church, uh, I'm reminded how Dr. Joseph Stoll, the president at Moody, would say the sun never sets on Moody grads. Uh, they're serving in so many places, and it's neat to see some of our alumni here today. And, and from Shepherd's Theological Seminary, uh, a younger school uh, will be celebrating our 20th anniversary in the coming year in 2023. And we already have one of our grads here serving with you at Sunset Bible Church. What a privilege. I was going to say, I remember preaching in a church in Chicagoland. It had all of the elements of the bulletin and the service spelled out. And, and someone was sitting there looking through what's going to happen. And he noticed my name by the message. And he just kind of blurted out, oh, no, not Dr. Sigler. He's the most boring lecturer we have. The woman next to him said, do you know who I am? And he said, no. She said, I'm his wife. And he said, uh, do you know who I am? And she said, no. He said, good, see ya. And he was out of there. So I've already met the majority of our alumni, both from Shepherds and uh, Moody here this morning. So, but if there are others I haven't caught, it'll be great to catch up. In fact, there's even someone who's been attending your church recently who was my college roommate when I was a student. We were students together in Israel on the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee. We spent our junior year of college together. And now he's a part of your congregation. He's in Sunday school, and he'll be in the third service. So kind of fun to come to a place we've never been uh, until today. And yet so many wonderful friends in the body of Christ. It's a pleasure to be with you and to share from God's word this morning. Turn your attention to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 23, as we consider the Day of Atonement and its instruction for us to be humbled, well, for ancient Israel to humble themselves uh, before the Lord, and it's a reminder of us. So we might ask the question, why would we bother turning to this ancient feast uh, or festival, or actually not a feast and not a festival, but a an appointed time given to Israel. And there are a few reasons we might look at the Day of Atonement today. And that is, first of all, because this coming Tuesday evening, the entire Jewish world will be observing this date on the calendar. It comes around every year in the fall of the year, usually September or October on what is known as the 10th day of the seventh month in the Jewish calendar, the month of Tishrei, the Day of Atonement. 
the Day of Atonement happening beginning this Tuesday evening through Wednesday evening all around the world. Jewish people will be acknowledging this day. It's such an important day on the Jewish calendar. It's a time of year when people are more introspective, thinking about what kind of person am I? Am I a good person? Am I a a bad person? How have I been treating people in my relationships? What should I change about my life? I'm reminded of a t-shirt I saw. I'm tempted to buy it. It said, I haven't been to the gym in, uh, this week. That makes 500 days in a row. Um, maybe a person is introspective about things they should change in their lives. I'm even reminded of one person who self-identified as a complete atheist, but because of his Jewish background, he went to synagogue at Yom Kippur. His friend asked him, what are you doing here? And he said, just in case. (laughs) Yom Kippur is such an important day that it seems to cause many Jewish people to think about things they wouldn't think about any other time. And again, it's coming up this week. And for us, uh, people who profess faith in the Messiah, the Messiah who was introduced as the Messiah of Israel, the one who was born in Bethlehem, of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of David, the one who gave his life in Jerusalem, who was buried, who rose again on the third day, the one whom the scripture teaches us is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that it would be helpful for us to better understand our own salvation and the atonement offered through the death of Jesus by better understanding this Day of Atonement, as it's revealed in Leviticus 23. It's also a good reason to study about the Day of Atonement because it helps us not only understand our own salvation, but to appreciate our Savior, what it meant for Him to do all the work on our behalf so that we could have forgiveness of sins. And finally, perhaps... A final reason that it might be helpful for us to consider the Day of Atonement today is that uh, by a better understanding of what the Scripture teaches about the Day of Atonement, perhaps you will be better equipped to engage your Jewish friends on the topic of the Gospel. So the Day of Atonement. Let's turn our attention to Leviticus chapter 23. And by the way, I was reminded how uh, you have these notes in your bulletin I didn't know about those notes until after the first service. I had sent them to Pastor Jay because uh, I knew others were preaching in your other sites on the same passage and wanted to, you know, speak on the same theme. It's almost like we tell students about when they're learning Hebrew and Greek exegesis in the seminary. Um, Hebrew and Greek should be like underwear. They lend a lot of support, but no one should have to see them. Um, These are like my notes. I didn't intend for you to have these notes necessarily, but hey, now you know where we're going. On the second Roman numeral, we're leaving all that out. We don't have time for that. This is an hour-long presentation. Skip that. We're going one and three, but you would never know that unless you had, well, my sermon notes. Well, thank you very much. So now the beans have been spilt. 
So we will turn our attention in a moment to the significance of Yom Kippur in past history. But let's look, first of all, at the trademarks of biblical instruction in Leviticus chapter 23. As we would consider Leviticus 23, Leviticus 23 is often called the feast chapter of the Bible. If you're reading the New Testament, perhaps the gospel accounts where Jesus was described as going up to Jerusalem because a feast of the Jews was at hand, and you're not familiar with said feast, go back to Leviticus 23 because listed in order are all of the festivals, the appointed times as they're called, because one of them is not a feast, it's Yom Kippur. It's a day of fasting, not feasting. But starting in the, well, springtime, you have Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you have the Feast of First Fruits, and then seven weeks later, you have the Feast of Weeks. You call it Pentecost because they were commanded to count seven weeks. Math majors, how many days is that? 49. On the next day, they had a big party, the Feast of Weeks, called Pentecostas in Greek, or 50 days, because seven weeks had passed. Those are the spring feasts. Leviticus 23 mentions and describes the duties of the Israelites for all of those. And then fast forward over the summer, because God in his mercy did not command the Israelites to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate any feast during the summertime. In his mercy, he didn't say, walk 70 miles or something from the Sea of Galilee area all the way up to Jerusalem in the heat of July. No, they had the summers off from these appointed times. And in the fall of the year, you have the Feast of Trumpets, known as Rosh Hashanah, or the head of the year. This is often called the Jewish New Year, and so people will be wishing one another a Shana Tova, a, a happy New Year. And then, 10 days later, you have the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, at which we'll look today. And then there's one final festival, one appointed time, that is a week-long celebration when the Israelites were commanded to dwell in booths for seven days because it harkens back to the time wandering in the wilderness when they had not yet entered the Promised Land, but were cared for by God in the wilderness for that 40-year period. So just take one week every year and remember that 40 years that God had taken care of Israel in the wilderness, and you, it was commanded for the Israelites, are to dwell in booths for seven days, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, known as Sukkot. So all seven of these festivals, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, the Day of Atonement, and finally, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, Sukkot. They're all listed and described with the appropriate instructions in Leviticus 23. We're turning to this one because, hey, it's happening this week. And uh, since this is the first Day of Atonement that I'll ever uh, observe in the state of Washington in my life, I thought, how can I talk about anything else? This is what's on everyone's mind, at least in my neighborhood. It's what everyone is thinking about, talking about. Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Why is this so important? Let's take a look at the biblical text. Leviticus 23, 26 to 32. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, on exactly the 10th day of this seventh month is a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you and you shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. 
Neither shall you do any work on this same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. If there is any person who will not humble himself on this same day, he shall be cut off from his people. As for any person who does any work on this same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no work at all. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations, in all your dwelling places. It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest for you, and you shall humble your souls. On the ninth of the month at evening, even from evening until evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. Can we review some of these biblical instructions? First of all, they were told to do no work at all. In fact, all the work that was to be done on the Day of Atonement was to be accomplished by the high priest. Not even the average, normal, run-of-the-mill, everyday priest was to be doing work at all, though normally they were there to receive all the free will offerings on any given day, all the thanksgiving offerings that the Israelites would bring on any given day. They were the ones who were working rather hard. Priests, by the way, were not, well, how shall I just say, it wasn't a desk job. Uh, they were doing hard labor, like dealing with cattle and animals and hoisting them onto altars and tying them down. Uh, They were cutting the entrails and placing the fat on the altar so that the sweet-smelling aroma would go up before the Lord. Uh, It was almost like being a butcher to be a priest. You have to know the animal. You have to know the animal parts. You have to know how to Uh, Not just to sacrifice, uh, but to prepare the sacrifice. But on this day, no normal priest is doing any work. It's all done by the high priest. Not only are the Israelites commanded, neither shall you do any work, but they're also commanded to humble themselves. You shall humble your souls. Now, on most of the other seven festivals... They are happy holidays. In fact, this is a common greeting in Hebrew. You would tell your friend, Chag Sameach, have a happy holiday. On Yom Kippur, you never say that. This is a more solemn, more introspective, more thought-provoking, holy day. Not just a holiday. It's not just a day off when you don't do no work at all. And so, hey, I can do whatever I want. No, no, no. On this day, you're humbling yourself. You're intentionally focusing on, on your, your status before a holy God and your need for atonement. In fact, most of the holidays can be summarized with three simple points. They tried to kill us. They didn't succeed. So let's eat. That, that's Jewish education 101. Now, who tried to kill us? Was it the Egyptians And they didn't succeed. So we have a Passover meal. See, the Seder. Or is it Hanukkah? The Greeks tried to kill us. Uh, They didn't succeed. And so because you'll recall that the Maccabees revolted against Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who sacrificed a pig on the altar in Jerusalem. Remember Hanukkah? And they pushed back and they, they rounded up a, a ragtag group that became an army together and they pushed back the Greek army. This was a big deal. And so because they were then able to have some quasi-independence from the Greek empire, 
and to restart sacrifices again, but the temple had been defiled. They, they had run out of consecrated oil, so the tradition says. Like, this isn't the Bible. This is like the intertestamental period. This is that time period where the uh, non-inspired books, like the books of the Maccabees, tell about this. And so tradition has it that they had run out of consecrated oil and they needed consecrated, uh, set apart for God, holy oil to light the menorah, the golden lampstand in the temple. And there was only one day's worth of oil left. And somehow it lasted for eight days. And so on Hanukkah, uh, a word which means dedication, then we're recalling the rededication of the temple and its festive lights. This is a happy holiday. You certainly say Chag Sameach at Hanukkah. And this time it was the Greeks. You know, if we were to go back to Esther's day, the Feast of Purim, it wasn't the Greeks. It wasn't the Egyptians. You know, this time it was the Persians. Remember Haman wanting to kill the Jews? By the way, this is an old story. It's like Satan needs a new concept once in a while in his opposition of God. God says, I love Israel as the apple of my eye. The great adversary, Satan, the evil one. What does he hate consistently? It's always kill the Jews. By the way, it's not just anti-Semitism that says, I don't like something about Judaism or I don't like something about Jewish culture. Uh, that's not anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is always a desire to annihilate the Jewish people. And of course, we understand why this was, because God said his plan right from the beginning in the book of Genesis Genesis chapter 12, Abram, I'm going to bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. The plan of redemption was going to come through Abraham, and not Ishmael, but Isaac, and, and not Esau, but Jacob, and not just any of the 12 tribes, but from the tribe of Judah, and not just any of Judah's descendants, but from the line of David. And the Messiah was going to come in David's line, in fact, in David's city in Bethlehem, the Messiah was going to be born. And so you can imagine why the adversary, the declared enemy of God, Satan wants to cut off the line anywhere he can along history. A great sermon for another day is called, If There Had Never Been a Hanukkah, Could There Have Ever Been a Christmas? You know, just think about it. Here it is that on this special day, it is not a feast of the Jews, it is a fast for all Israel. They are to humble themselves and to consider this great need for atonement. Further, they are told that it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you on your behalf before the Lord your God. You see, the high priest was to present an offering. This offering is further spoken about. In the book of Leviticus, it gets its own full and complete chapter, chapter 16, where the instructions uh, from Leviticus 23 have already been given in great detail in chapter 16, where we read about these special instructions. By the way, for our Moody grads, this is a photo on the right of my former colleague from Moody, who now teaches at the Master's Seminary, Dr. Kevin Zuber, 
Uh, Kevin and I were having breakfast one day in the SDR, the student dining room. And I told him, I was teaching on Yom Kippur today, and I brought this white linen ephod that the high priest was supposed to wear on the Day of Atonement. And I need to get a photo of this. And he said, oh, I'll do it. So we put this white linen ephod on Dr. Zuber, and and there he is. Uh, You know, it's not the glorious, beautiful robes of the high priest. It's, It's what the high priest only wore on the Day of Atonement, a simple humble white robe, because this was to remind all of Israel how all work was forbidden, uh, that they were to humble themselves. Uh, The high priest was to present an offering, and as we find in chapter 16, there were two goats. One goat was an offering for the Lord, la Adonai, and the other offering was an offering called the scapegoat, la Azazel, that would go out into the wilderness. And as the high priest was to wear this simple robe and to be reminded of his own need for atonement, you see, the high priest was to make an atonement first for himself because he is a sinner and then also on behalf of all the people. And therefore, he has to lay aside his festive garments. I mean, the high priest and the high priestly garments... I mean, they had these beautiful stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. They had a, a golden uh, mount on their mitre or crown-like element on their head that says, Holy unto the Lord. These festive garments of the high priest are what he wore most days to distinguish him from the average everyday priest. But on this day, the Day of Atonement, he was to humble himself. And to wear the simple garments for Yom Kippur. We find that not only were there the biblical instructions that were trademarks of Yom Kippur, but also there are a number of traditions from rabbinical Judaism. You see, after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, it was impossible to carry out the sacrificial system and various traditions developed in its place. We read how in one of these traditions recorded in the Talmud in a tractate that states our rabbis taught during the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the lot for the Lord did not come up in the right hand. Let's stop there for a moment. Casting lots was one way of determining the Lord's will in ancient times. Uh, Casting a lot, we're not exactly sure. No one's found the box to see what they look like, and certainly no one's found the instruction card for how to do it. But we knew that somehow they were cast. I don't know if it was like dice or it was like flipping a coin, but apparently there were two options. Does the Lord want this or does the Lord want that? Let's cast lots and find out. Occasionally, for Yom Kippur, they would have these two goats and they would determine from, Luke, uh, from rather Leviticus chapter 16, which of these two goats is to go off into the wilderness bearing our reproach, and which one is going to be sacrificed to the Lord as a whole burnt offering. We read in this tractate of the Talmud that for 40 years before the destruction of the temple, that lot to indicate which of the two goats was to go for the Lord as a whole burnt offering never came up in the right hand. Now, friends, think about it. If it's like flipping a coin, there's either heads or tails. There's either... Yes or no. There's, there are two options. If someone's flipping a coin for you, heads I win, tails you lose. And it comes up, tails, you know, 
multiple times in a, uh, in a row, you need to look at the coin, don't you? I mean, what is this a double-tailed coin, you know? Uh, this lot, for 40 years, you know, you flip, flip the coin, for 40 years it's coming up tails. Never in the right hand. Now, the right hand, of course, in antiquity, in many cultures, was often a symbol of honor. I say that as someone who's left-handed, by the way. Um, I do have a coffee cup someone gave me. Bad theology, but it's kind of fun. It said, everyone's born left-handed. You turn right-handed when you commit your first sin. Um, so for all of you fellow lefties out there, um, bad theology, bad theology, but it's kind of a fun cup. Uh, think about it. The, 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 the indicator, this lot that would say, this sacrifice is acceptable to the Lord, it never came up in the acceptable hand. It's like something's wrong here. Further, we read... That during the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the lot for the Lord did not come up in the right hand, nor did the crimson-colored strap become white. Mm, here's a tradition. The crimson-colored strap turning white. Will Varner, in a helpful article in Israel My Glory magazine, wrote many years ago that there is this rabbinic reference to the custom of tying a red thread to the horn of the second live goat. It was believed that if God accepted Israel's sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, the red thread would miraculously turn white as the goat was led away. We have no way of knowing whether or not this actually occurred. It is interesting, however, that later rabbis admitted, as we have here, that for the last 40 years prior to the destruction of the temple, the thread never once turned white. Now, math majors... Think about what was happening about 30 years. No, no, no. 40 years before the destruction of the temple. When was the second temple destroyed? In the year 70 AD. What was going on about 40 years before that? The crucifixion of Jesus reminds us that strange things began happening in the temple. Remember the veil was torn in two? That there was a great earthquake, the, uh, the sun turned dark. It was, it was a scary moment as he committed himself as a sacrifice. We read here in this tractate from the Talmud that the crimson colored strap stopped becoming white. We also read that nor did the westernmost light shine. The westernmost light, what could this be referring to? Well, the tabernacle in the book of Exodus was commanded to be built on an east-west orientation. Perhaps you've seen models of the tabernacle and this furniture, how there's the holy of holies, and then out from that is the holy place, and out from that is the court with a uh, laver, and then the altar of incense, and then there's a further entrance. Well, all of these were covered with with sashes that kept them um, through these tapestry-like doors, hidden, covered, closed. But here we read that nor did the westernmost light shine. So come in, come in through the one entrance of the tabernacle. You come first to the altar of burnt offering. First, you need to deal with sin. Then you come to the labor. You have to address the issue of cleansing. And then you could enter the holy place. Well, as you enter the holy place, off to your left would stand the menorah, the golden lampstand, and off to your right, the table of showbread, which was shown or illuminated because you have this candelabra constantly lit. And then, of course, you have the altar of incense and the 
thin curtain which keeps closed off the Holy of Holies, where was the Ark of the Covenant. We'll stop there for a moment and note that in this tractate from the Talmud, we read that the western light would not shine. It was the duty of the priest to keep that light shining, to keep the oil, to keep the wicks, to keep that menorah constantly lit, but just kept going out. Have you ever had one of those lighters? You're trying to light the campfire, and and nothing, 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 nothing. You get another, click, 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 nothing, nothing. It had to be a frustrating job. They're trying to light the golden lampstand in the temple. Keeps going out. Keeps going out. Keeps going out. For 40 years this happened. Talk about frustrating. If you feel frustrated at work, you know, perhaps this can be an encouragement to you. At least it's not this bad. Not only did the lights keep going out, and it was their duty to keep the lights on, but the doors kept opening themselves. Remember, like the, like the veil that was torn open, so these doors keep opening themselves to the temple until Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai rebuked them, saying, Temple, temple, why wilt thou be the alarmer thyself? I know about thee that thou wilt be destroyed. For Zechariah ben Edo has already prophesied concerning thee. And this is a quote from the book of Zechariah. Open thy doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour thy cedars. It was a prediction already in the time of Zechariah who was promoting the rebuilding of the temple that the temple would one day be destroyed. Further, Rabbi Isaac ben Table said, why is its name called Lebanon? See, in rabbinic literature, there are often these shortcuts, these code words, and you could use the word Lebanon to refer to the temple for a number of reasons. First, of course, the cedars of Lebanon were used to build Solomon's temple. But the word Lebanon, Lebanon in Hebrew, is also from the root word Levan, which means white. And some of the best incense, which were burned on the altar of incense, were from Lebanon, where you could get these special white incense that would be burned. And these incense were called Levona. You hear all this Levan, Levona, Levnon. It's all from the same word from which we get the modern country name of Lebanon. Why is it called Lebanon? Why is the temple referred to as Lebanon? Because it makes white the sins of Israel. Of course, this harkens back to what we read about in Isaiah 118. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like crimson, they shall be as wool. Though they are red, they shall be as white as snow. Friends, these traditions highlight some important things for us. In fact, the common traditions associated with Yom Kippur in the rabbinic community can be listed here for you as, first of all, the kaparot ceremony. Kaparot, from the word Yom Kippur, which means covering, suggests that there are some, and this is only in the most observant of Orthodox communities who acknowledge that I know Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said that we no longer have to have sacrifices now that the temple is destroyed and that God will now accept prayer and good deeds. But it just doesn't feel right because Leviticus tells us that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. 
And so the tradition is to take a chicken and to slaughter the chicken as you gather your children around you and wave it over your family and to say something like this. This is my substitute. This is my vicarious offering, my atonement. This chicken shall be put to death, but I shall enjoy a long and pleasant life of peace. You see, there is this acknowledgement that even though the rabbis are very happy to tell you that, hey, if you pray enough, God will forgive you. If you come to synagogue and you say enough prayers... God will forgive you. In fact, among these prayers are the famous al-chet, for the sin, as it's called. Uh, the sins are listed in alphabetical order, in case you forget one. Uh, you can you, you kind of go from, in English we'd say, from A to Z. From the beginning to the end, through the list. And, you know, help you think about all the sins you've ever committed and make sure you've confessed them all before God. Or there's the famous kol nidre prayer, where... People gather together, especially for the melodic singing and chanting of the Kol Nidre prayers translated all vows. This prayer originated due to the Inquisition in the 15th century in Spain, where Jewish people were called as a term of derision, maranos, a word that meant pigs, because they were forced to convert by the Roman Catholic Church. And at least outwardly, they had to live as Christians, and yet they inwardly maintained their Jewish identity in secret and could not carry out their vows to God because they wanted to beg God for forgiveness for all the vows they'd been forced to make. These kol nidre prayers emerged, requesting that they would be released from all vows. Of course, we should note that there is no prayer that can release anyone, including us, from the penalty of sin. It's not even, in fact, for you or for me, a prayer of repentance in the name of Jesus that saves you. Jesus saves, not your prayer that saves. Even the sinner's prayer can't save you if you trust in that prayer. It is only the sacrifice of Christ which alone satisfies God's righteous demand. But we all have traditions. In fact, another tradition is to read the book of Jonah in the synagogue because Jonah went and preached a message of judgment to the great city of Nineveh, you'll recall. By the way, he wasn't real happy to go. He needed an attitude adjustment. And finally he went. And when he went, he wasn't very nice when he preached either. He wasn't saying, it'd be great if you all came to faith and were forgiven of your sins. No, he had a message in Hebrew, if I recall, it was like five words in Hebrew. It was like, Od arbaim yamim veninvenit pachat. In another 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And then the king repented and God relented. This was not what Jonah wanted. The book ends with him pouting, not praising. But the fact that God is willing to forgive repentant sinners is the reason why the book of Jonah is read in the synagogue. In fact, for 10 days leading up to Yom Kippur, the 10 days of awe begin with Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, when people wish one another a happy new year, a year in which you will enjoy God's favor. They may be greeted with Lashana Tova, happy new year, or Lashana Tova Umetuka, 
have a sweet and happy year. Or they can be greeted with, May your name be inscribed in the book of life for this happy new year. And yet, the Feast of Trumpet that begins uh, this, this 10 days leading up to the ending of the fall feasts, it's a warning, it's a war cry, it's a witness. Um, and it's a reminder of the coming judgments with Yom Kippur. But all of this sets the, sets the background for the book of Hebrews. Because you have the symbol of Yom Kippur for the present time reference in the book of Hebrews. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 9. We'll just read through the text. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which there were uh, the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with golds, in which was a jar, a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded in the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these time, uh, things we cannot now speak in detail. Apparently, the writer of the book of Hebrew was, uh, was running out of time in his sermon too. And so it's like, we're not going to go into that. But, but let's just you know, get to the end here in verse 6. Now, when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second... The Holy of Holies, only the high priest enters once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. And so there you have, this is the tabernacle worship service related to the Day of Atonement, where only one man, the high priest, on only one day of the year, Yom Kippur, goes into this one place, the Holy of Holies. You know, we're reminded how the high priest would lay aside his royal-looking robe. Uh, Perhaps this is one more reason why the book of Jonah is read, because in Jonah chapter 3, verse 6, we read that when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe from himself and covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes, a sign of repentance. You know, this is also like what Jesus did As he prepared to give his life a sacrifice, he, we read in John chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had become, that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself about. Notice the humility with which he prepared to be the sacrifice for his disciples. So friends, what can we take away from the Day of Atonement and its teaching throughout Scripture. First of all, we do no work at all to receive salvation. Um, We're reminded in numerous passages of Scripture. I just think of Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Further, we are reminded that Messiah Jesus, he humbled himself to the point of death and was afflicted for our transgressions. Philippians 2, 8 reminds us how he humbled himself. Uh, Isaiah 53, how he was afflicted. 
Further, we read that our high priest offered himself as the ultimate atoning sacrifice for sin, removing it far from us. Remember John one twenty nine. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I hope this is true of you today, that you're able to say that because of the atoning work of Jesus, he has separated your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. He's buried it in the deepest sea. Your sins are gone because of the holy offering of Jesus himself. You see, he laid aside the robes of his glory to make atonement for you and me. And I hope this allows you to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the reminders from the Day of Atonement and its instruction in Scripture about how the Israelites were to remind themselves even once a year of their great need for sins forgiven. May we remind ourselves today of the great price that was paid for our redemption. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much, Dr. Tim. I love how the Old Testament and the New Testament are friends. And to understand the New Testament, you look to the Old Testament and you see it come to life. As we apply this wonderful remembrance of Jesus and his atonement for us, we are going to receive communion today. If you know Christ is your Savior, we invite you to share with us in receiving the little bread, points to the body of Christ broken for us, a little cup of juice, Reminds us of his blood shed for us. been interesting to me as we have shifted style a bit in how we receive communion and coming forward to communion stations, uh, how different people have, have responded to that simple act of coming. And a number of people have said, you know, I didn't mind the other way we did it, but there's something about me getting up and coming that is a good physical way of entering into worship. Interesting, the way God has wired us. I hope that's, that that's true for you, that awareness. We're coming, joining, joining uh, saints for the last 2,000 years who, and all around the world today who in different places, uh, large and small, some persecuted, some not, uh, have, have remembered Christ with a little cracker or some sort and a little cup of juice of some sort. And all of this, of course, we're remembering the gospel and a verse that we'll be to in our study of 2 Corinthians soon Second um, Corinthians five twenty one says, "For our sake, God made him that is Jesus to be sin for us, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God." In other words, God placed our sin on His shoulders. He, the atoning sacrifice, so that we could be forgiven. And when we trust Christ as our Savior, our sin placed on Christ who paid for it once for all, and his robes of righteousness wrap around us. We are covered by his righteousness. Amazing, the work of Christ for us. That little piece of cracker uh, 
It reminds us of the body of Christ broken for us there on the cross. Let's take this together as we remember him. Likewise, the little cup of juice points us to the blood of Jesus shed for us on the cross. That cup that Jesus pointed to with his disciples as he took that third cup, the cup after supper, saying, this is the blood of the new covenant. And he said, remember me. And we do that together as well. I would love to pray for us as we head out. I'll say just a word after I say amen, and then you'll you'll head on out. Would you stand with me, please, as we pray? Our Father, thank you for the morning. My mind goes to the words of a familiar old song, full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Oh, Father, thank you that in Christ our sins are forgiven once for all, the work of redemption complete by the finished work of Jesus on the cross, to which we can add nothing by all of our good efforts and and, uh, things that we might think are helpful. Oh, Father, covered by the blood of Jesus. Thank you for this. I pray for all of us as we head out today that you would just flood our mind this week with the work of Jesus, the joy that we have in a Savior such as him. And we pray together in his name. Amen.